Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Today, we're speaking to singer-songwriter Estero. When Estero released her trip-hop masterpiece, Breath from Another, in 1998, she was only 18 years old. Having recently left her idyllic countryside home in Ontario to pursue the burgeoning music scene in Toronto, Estero penned an album that would soon change the face of music. By fusing confessional lyrics with an amalgam of sounds, the result was something fresh and timeless. With two solo albums to follow, including Wicked Little Girls and Everything is Expensive, as well as a number of high-profile collaborations with artists like Andre 3000, Black Eyed Peas, Most Deaf, and Sean Lennon, Estero has managed to navigate an ever-shifting music industry for over two decades, all while staying true to herself. She's even found strength to take on the big streamers like Spotify over their unfair treatment of artists. We welcome Estero. The first time I saw you was on the Chris Rock show. You were performing Heaven Sent. And I think a lot of your fans probably trace that performance back to the first time they saw you. And I remember for me, it was like I had to get your album the next day. I'd never seen anything like it. And there was like an integration of jazz and there was hip hop. And when I finally heard the album, it was just to me, there was such an eclectic mix of sounds. And I just, I wanted to know, was that a conscious decision going into the studio? Where did that come from, that sound? I think if I was who I was and I had grown up anywhere else than where I grew up, it would have been impossible to make that record. That record is because I was raised and I spent my early parts of my youth where I did in the family that I have and specifically that I spent my teen years and early 20s in Toronto. Toronto is completely responsible for that. And the reason is, is that Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world. It's 49% Mm -hmm. ethnic. Large portion of that being West Indian, Africans, South Asian. You have so much musical influence. What else is special about it is that it is not segregated. It is very, very, very integrated. If it's segregated at all, it's by class, but it's not by culture. So you get places like Queen Street, where you could walk down the street and you could go to the horseshoe and see some like country or rockabilly or maybe even catch like Ron Sexsmith. And then you could go to the Rivoli and see some acid jazz. And then you could go to the Bamboo and maybe you would catch Erica Badu in her early days or you would see Sean Paul reggae and then you would walk down the street to Adelaide to up and down and you would hear drum and bass and jungle and then maybe if you went up to College Street you would go to El Conventerico and you would hear salsa and Latin music but a lot of Queen Street in particular is that you would do all of these cultures all within literally the same fucking block they were next door to each other being able to do that and not get second looks anywhere you walked in no matter what color you were what age you were what gender you were And being welcomed is huge because I was just exposed to so, 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 so much. And the other thing about Toronto is it used to be that there weren't necessarily a ton of good bands or so, but there were great players. Now there are really great bands and really great acts, but it has always been driven by the players. The level of musicianship in my city is unbelievable. Like these cats are crazy. And that's part of it. If you grow up there, you're going to have a Jamaican friend. You're going to have a Trini friend. You're going to have 
a Chinese friend, a Japanese friend. You're going to have a friend from Hungary. You're going to have a friend from Chile. You're going to have all of that. And they are going to bring that culture authentically to you. So everything from the music, the food, all of it, you get exposed to it. And in a very authentic, a very real way. And that is the things I'm most proud of as far as Toronto in particular, the difference between America and Canada is people will talk about American as apple pie and everyone's welcome. But when you come here, you become Americanized, you become a part of us, right? But when you go to Canada, you belong, but you're also encouraged to keep your own culture and share it with others. So it's much more of a salad bowl than a melting pot. You're encouraged to keep where you're from and share it with us. Whereas here, it's sort of a little more like you assimilate. That's the long answer as to why that record sounded the way it did. It's 100% has to do with my environment. That's so interesting because Alex and I were talking earlier and he said something like, it's world music. And then you just spoke to that. <laughs> exactly. You can <laughs> find the world in Toronto in like four square blocks. In a couple blocks. kind of wonderful to hear because not everyone knows that, I think, about Toronto. And with that, I think Breath from Another came at the tail end of trip hop. Yeah. And was kind of lumped into that genre. And I'm curious, how do you define trip hop? Was it justifiable as a label for your music? It was always a little bit confusing for me. What bothered me about trip hop was I felt like the people within that scene weren't calling themselves that. Like that was a name that was created to market. I understand the idea was that it was heavily influenced by hip hop, but it just had like a more slowed down, more softer kind of vibe. I also had a very hard time defining what trip hop was because to me, like Massive Attack made trip hop records. Bjork could be put in that category. Portishead, Tricky, but all of those groups were drastically different from each other. So who is the real trip hop? This is where this real snob comes out. When people started lumping me together with other bands that were called trip hop that I really did not like, that you think of now, and they are synonymous with that genre. And I just, as a music fan, was not into them. And I didn't think that they were cool or I didn't like their sound. I didn't think their beats were hard enough or gritty enough, or I thought that they were too commercial and corny. That commercialized trip hop, when I started, my little inner teenage snob was like, ew. No. Did the work label, which was new at the time, I think you were one of the first artists to sign with them. Was that a marketing decision to push you as that because they felt that it was a way of selling records or were they more open in terms of how they marketed you? I was actually at the end of work group, right? Like, so there, oh, okay. the label fell apart while I was like on stage in Calgary. Like, oh, the record had just come out, but it was a new label and it was a wonderful label. I definitely mourned its passing. So how did your life change following the release of BFA? Like everything that I had said was ever going to happen from when I was a kid suddenly was happening. So like I was vindicated, like I was like, I told you, <laughs> especially being a kid from a small town and everybody kind of where you're from telling you that you're, you're going to fail simply because there is an invisible vacuum that exists in this small town that will suck you back in no matter how hard you try to get out. So like I was already famous in my hometown before I even did music simply for living in the city and not moving back. That was a big deal on its own. So my life changed. I started having access to people that I had admired. I started traveling the world. I started meeting a lot of my heroes befriended heroes. I became friends with Trey from the far side. I had loved the far side records growing up. And, 
you know, and then I'm meeting the kids from the roots and I'm hanging out with people and Q-tip invited me to go to see D'Angelo at the House of Blues in Toronto and Leonardo DiCaprio met us there. And like, it was crazy. You know, like, wow. it's like, I think about it now, got to meet Prince, wow. you know, Prince was later, but just my life, I think it also changed in ways where I wasn't used to having my photo taken very, very much. I didn't like having my makeup done or being prodded or dressed like a doll. That was all very new to me as a tomboy kid, right? Like, and as a kid who had always been, I guess, identified myself at that time with being like the funny one, the smart one, the talented one, not the pretty one, not Mm -hmm. the sexy one. It was very weird for me and not necessarily something I wanted either, right? Like not a level of pressure, but also just having the regular vanity of a teenage girl, (laughs) not even vanity, but like that I was very self-conscious. I was extremely self-conscious. There were things like that that were tough, just being afraid that I would be like picked apart physically and that even anyone was even focusing on that was really terrifying for me, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, was it a male dominated world at that time? I mean, you were a teenager and isn't it still? (laughs) I'm like, girl, you live in it. Well, right on that. And it is also right now an interesting time for a female artist now because, you know, things are changing with the Me Too movement and time's up. And the question is, how can we help this broken system? Oh, gosh. Are you asking me? Yeah. You're asking me now. I'm asking you. Like, what was it like? The woman in the room. Well, what was it like then for you in terms of that world, that male dominated world compared to now when people are starting to speak out and things are shifting and there's more of an arena to say, no, I can be more empowered. I mean, it's always been for me, I was always quite verbal and very outspoken when you're a woman. Like if you're young enough, you're a brat. And when you're old enough, you get to graduate and be called a bitch. And I knew that and I wouldn't let it bother me. I just fought all the harder and like maintained my fiery disposition. I think about just existing in the world then and like the things that we tolerated or witnessed Mm -hmm. and that in a way is sort of like our own little like Stockholm syndrome too, right? Because it was just how it was. And there was like a silent, agreement or an understanding. This is just how things are. So I think bad behavior back then for me was taken a little bit more with a grain of salt. It had to be if I was going to survive because it couldn't count every crime. But I think about the things that I witnessed back then now, and I'm just like, good God, that was a lot for a 19 years old, you know, a lot of stuff to shoulder, a lot of responsibility. And I was also a 19 year old girl that was the boss of numerous men who were all much older than me and on the road and who were reaping the benefits of my notoriety after shows. (laughs) That's pretty wild. Even if there wasn't like inappropriate behavior as far as like non-consensual behavior or stuff like that, but just stuff where it's like, good God, I always felt like one of the boys. I always felt like I had to just be cool and one of the boys. And now as an older woman where I look back on stuff and I'm like, man, that was so disrespectful. But there's the part of me too that's like... Men are such trash. You know, like, that's how I handle it. Like, oh, well, me. that's because men are trash. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Myself, I have a lot of melancholy memories from that period of my life that I've tried not to internalize too much and unleash on myself as shame because it's not helping anybody. But there are definitely unpleasant memories from that period of time and a feeling of having to, having to fight for myself. 
all the time. But I don't know how much that has changed other than when I fight now, people are listening and, you know, willing to believe you when you talk and it's not completely ignored. That's something, don't you think? It's so strange now, this sort of just reflecting back on this time, not just like my time, but that time in general, like the 90s, the 2000s, anything pre me too. It's just so interesting to look back on it now and think about what we tolerate, what we have all as women tolerated for so long and what men have also tolerated when told. So back to that broken system question, what would you say if you could say one thing that you'd like to change? I don't think there's a cure-all. I think empathy, empathy Mm -hmm. would be great. But I think it's still the cure for everything, just to train people in empathy. For me, I've always fancied myself an empathy dealer. That's what I do. When I make songs and I'm singing, to me, that's all I really am doing. I'm an empathy dealer. And if you don't feel anything when you hear my voice and I am not doing my job, but you should definitely hear me sing and you should feel broken or you should feel ecstatic. You should feel my pain. You should feel my joy. If I haven't accomplished that, then I fail. So what's your writing process like to bring that empathy forward? How do you create a song with that in mind? Or is it just, is it a part of it? I think it's just a part of who I am. Like that I am expressive and I'm as authentic as I can be. And even in the moments that I'm embellishing and being playful, I commit to it authentically. (laughs) Does that make sense? It doesn't have to, I guess. No, no. (laughs) You had talked before in just some past interviews I read about writer's block. And that was a question I wanted. I think a lot of people could gain from sort of hearing your experience with that. I mean, how do you push forward when you experience that as a writer? It's changed. I mean, in general, I don't. Like, I, I kind of have a rule that I don't have a problem with work, but I do have a problem with anything that becomes laborious. When it has to do with music, it shouldn't feel laborious. That doesn't mean I don't have a problem with crafting or working. That's the fun part. I generally don't push it. I kind of love Elizabeth E. Pray Love, writer. Elizabeth Gilbert. Yes. yes. And have you ever seen her TED Talk? I don't think I have. Oh, do yourselves a favor. Please watch her TED Talk on creativity, um, where she talks about just showing up for your part of the job every day. You know, so I show up, I make myself available, but if it's not coming, I don't force it. You know, I just let it be born when it wants to be born. Um, And I try to make it anytime it starts to feel like laborious or uncomfortable. I don't mean that emotionally uncomfortable. I mean, like where I'm like, I just want to take a nap. Like I'm so I'm not I hate this. Like for a moment where I like, I really hate this or I don't like (laughs) this. I step away because I'm not going to create anything good. I don't think. Or I'm just spoiled and I hate really hard work. But (laughs) this is what my process has been is I just, I show up and if it's there, it's there. And if it's not, it's not, I don't waste energy trying to force something that's not happening. It's, it's ridiculous to think that you can, um, that you can like catch a shooting star, like, like harness the sun. I think it's very egotistical to think that I can just harness it anytime I want. I think I can become available to it. I think that I most songs, I feel like they don't come from me. They come through me and I'm just tall enough to like pluck the low hanging spiritual fruit from the tree. Like I just, I go, oh, I can reach that and I get it. Oh, I can see. Yeah, there it is. But I don't think I'm responsible 
for it, you know, and I certainly don't think that I can control it. It's yeah. I'm just lucky enough to receive it and available when it comes. Well, you self-funded your last album, right? And yeah. crowdsourcing and produced it independently. Yeah. So what was that like producing this album and having complete creative control? I mean, it's fun. Making that record was probably one of the funnest experiences I've ever had in the studio. The most fun, the most relaxing. I laughed the most. We should just say this is everything is expensive. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to make it. And then I did. And then when I did, it was such a good time. Being in complete control is good when you have resources, right? I do have to say, like, I really love warm bodies. I do love the collaborative process. And it would be nice if my only job sometimes was to just show up and sing. That would be great, you know, because it's a lot of work being in charge and being a producer, right? Like, it's a lot. I think also you hit it on the head when you like self-fund it. Like, that's part of the reason that I have to be the producer is because I can afford my fee. (laughs) (laughs) Like if I could hire Marius DeVries, I would do that. (laughs) So would you describe yourself as an outlier or a renegade as an artist? Mm, Probably. (laughs) I mean, does that like just by like proof of sales alone? (laughs) You're like, clearly I'm not Ariana Grande. (laughs) No, but, but I mean, Ariana Grande also doesn't produce something from the ground up and isn't able to take multi genres and basically knock it out of the park each time. That we know of, that we know of, because I'll tell you right now, this is a huge belief of mine. I think because people like to ask me all the time, like, why do you think there are so little female producers? And I'm like, there's not, there's just very little with the audacity to say that that's what the fuck they're doing. Mm, the only yes. reason I'm a producer is because I just claimed credit for the shit that I did and for my ideas. But the way that this game is played in general, like you think Beyonce isn't producing herself or like long before we knew that she was producing herself. Beyonce, I'm sure of it, has been making her own vocal choices, producing her own vocals, making production choices and picking sounds and A lot of these women have been doing this for a very long time. And it's just has never occurred to say, can I have production credit, please? Because I made these really critical choices that were important. But I would say that there were plenty of artists that we wouldn't traditionally think of as producers that have probably been sitting with songs from inception to their completion. I remember being told years ago that Christina Aguilera, one of the mixers on Breath from Another, Dave Pensado, used to compare me to her all the time as far as he said, God, the only person I know with ears is sharp as yours is Christina, because I would leave the room and I'd come back in and I'd be like, you turned the harp down two dB and panned it like eight cents to the left. And he'd be like, how do you do that? <laughs> like you change like, <laughs> and it became a game. It'd be like one thing that was so random. I'm like, you turn down the vibraphone in the second verse and the third bar, the second verse, but only for like a bar. <laughs> and he'd be like, what is this insane? And he said, the only other person I know with ears like that is Christina. And I know that she is also somebody that would go and sit for mixes and sit. I mean, I'm there from the moment the song's born until I go sit in mastering sessions. Those guys are lonely. I wanted to put that out there right now. Yo, if you can go sit in a mastering session, those guys sit in a dark room alone all day. They like the company. They do. <laughs> like try not to breathe down anyone's neck, but just be there. But yeah, like I think that there are plenty of other probably very popular artists that are doing that. That well, just like Taylor Swift, who's now re-recording her songs that other people produced and producing it herself. 
Mm-hmm. That's, I think maybe this is the direction we're going where people are taking more ownership of their work. I mean, hopefully that's the way we're going. Yeah. I do want to be careful though in myself. I always try to remind myself because look, there's a big piece of me that needed to or demands credit for things because I wasn't given credit for a lot of the stuff that I did on the first album. And because I was suppressed a lot in that way, once I was free from that, you know, collaborative process, it made me very staunchly like, nope, I did this. You know, I want to be recognized for this. As I get older, the longer I've done that too, I don't really have anything to prove anymore. And I also recognize that 100% of nothing is still nothing. So if I do something all by myself, but it's trash, great, good for you. Like enjoy that victory lap alone. You know, like who wants to do that? You know, so it's become more important to me at this point in my life just to really make sure that something beautiful is made and I don't need credit for all of it. And I think that's what makes a good producer too, is understanding what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are. And that's one of my things as a producer is that I have always just hired people that are better than me. You know, there are songs where I could have played the piano on something. I could have played the guitar on something. Wouldn't have been very good but I'm not going to play it as well as Darren Johnson, who played with Miles Davis. That's the guy I want to play piano on it. I don't need the extra piano credit. I just need to make something gorgeous. Circling back to that root of your name and the persona that you became, what has felt heroic to you in your life as an artist? Oh my gosh. Robin has all the hard questions. Robin. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to. Robin. (laughs) Like, what have I done that felt heroic? Yeah. Or what have you experienced as heroic? If I can interject, I think your protest against Spotify is pretty heroic. I like that. If we can talk about that. We can. I don't know if I'm a hero or I'm just like too dumb to be scared or I know you're a hero. I feel like a little fruit fly, like picking on a giant. Like it's like, eh. Somebody has to say something and you, I think you were really one of the only ones that did. Yeah. But how tough is it when you don't have anything to lose? Tell us about Give Me Some Time. Give Me Some Time is the B-side for the final single of Baby Steps. I forgot to name my own song for a moment. A Baby Steps. And, you know, streaming revenue, it's not a lot. And I had read an article about why indie artists should stop streaming. And it was based on the principle of you can't expect people to purchase what you're willing to give away for free. And also that these streaming companies sort of promise this idea of exposure. And so that's why you want to be on there. But ultimately, I don't think it really does give you exposure. If anything, it's convenience, but you're just as likely to get lost in the shuffle unless you're willing to pay to play, right? So I had had this song called Black Mermaid that was used, that was on Everything's Expensive, but it was used a couple of years later in a movie and it had gotten a lot of spins and done really well. And I went on and I saw that it had over a million spins. And I thought, wow, that's just coming from the heritage music business that I come from. I was like, that's like a platinum record. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily equate spins with sales because that wouldn't be true. But what I realized was that even if only 1% of those had been sales instead of streaming, I would have made more money than I actually did from the streaming revenue. And if it had been 10%, I would have made in the neighborhood of, you know, $100,000, like an actual livable income. And I got really mad. Like, I just was like, this is bullshit. This is bullshit that I can have something that is this popular and this listened to and literally have nothing to show for it and no financial security. 
here we are, these streaming companies are like building their companies off of our backs. And I was mad at myself, to be honest. I was like, I should have taken it off streaming. I should have taken it off YouTube. And I thought about what if I had literally, if the song, when that came out in that movie, when I had that kind of publicity, what if I had only made it available for purchase on iTunes? It would have redirected everyone there. And it would have been an actual win for me, like an actual success after a 20 year career with not a lot to show in the terms of financial winning. There's this amazing gentleman named Michael McCarty, who was the president of EMI Publishing Canada for many years and then went on to numerous different places. And now he runs SoCan. But I always get great advice from him. And I love hearing him talk and wax philosophical about the music business. And I remember hearing a conversation with him where he was talking about music trailers. Artists should make trailers for their music But this was more in the terms of, you know, when you're pitching something for film and TV, because I get requests all the time and people will want to request for a cover or a song. And like, it's hard to like whip up something that sounds really amazing in a short period of time. So he was like, you know, the solution to that could be that instead of like doing a whole song when you get a pitch from a company is like just doing kind of a trailer of like, well, here's 30 seconds of what I would do. But I took that idea and my brain remembered that and thought about Spotify and these streaming services. And I was like, well, I don't want to miss out on the revenue that actually comes there. But what if I use them as a vehicle to redirect back to me? And how do I do that? And I thought, well, something just hit me. I was like, what if I put the song there, but not the whole song? And then I thought, well, I can't do that. I can't just put 30 seconds on there. I think the limit on Spotify is like a minute or something. It was like, or a minute 30. I was like, I can't just do that. I can't just cut off with no explanation. That's disrespectful. So I was like, what is the most respectful way to do that? And it would be to tell my fans exactly what's going on. So I was like, just on some V for Vendetta shit. I was like, I'll turn the music down and I'll tell them, hey, how are you? (laughs) Hello there. This uh, is not a really a great platform for me to actually make any income off of what I've done. And if you like what I've done and you want to support what I've done, why don't you head over here and actually purchase it from me? And then you can listen to the whole thing uninterrupted. I felt like that was the most respectful way to do that. So that's what I did. And I had a tenant in my house at the time, a roommate that said, this is fucking punk as fuck. And nobody's ever done this before. And you're going to get so much publicity. And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I've heard people tell me things before about how huge things are going to be. And I... And I've gotten excited. It's not worth it. I did it anyway. And then I did a podcast interview with Double O, Michael Aguilar from Kids in the Hall. And I was lamenting to him about this could be something that's really kind of cool. And and he said, you need a publicist. And then he gave me like a positive thinking podcast. Anyway, gave me some (laughs) motivational ass shit. And I remembered who the fuck I was and I started thinking real positive. And the next morning I woke up and I didn't have a publicist, but the next morning I woke up to my inbox to a journalist in Canada who had a large platform, who happened to be a fan, who happened to hear what I did. And he was like, this is punk as fuck and I want to cover it and I want to see what's going to happen. And if they take it down, you tell me because we're going to cover it. And then the story just sort of blew up. The whole idea for me was that I believe this is how we should be utilizing them, right? Like we use them as an opportunity to advertise. That's what I would like to see in the future. But that also would include everybody jumping on board. And I can tell you from experience, when you're the first person to do something, even if the idea is really good and it makes sense and it's logical, fear and complacency will always stop people from jumping on with you right away. And sometimes it takes time. And I will give you an example. More than 15 years ago, I called R. Kelly a rapist in my song and I asked why he was still allowed to be played on the radio when we knew he was a rapist. 
And then he peed on little girls and he videotaped them. And he was an abuser. And I came out with this song and it was a battle cry. And I really expected everybody to jump on board with me and go, yeah, this is fucked. Nobody did. Nobody did. And I'm a firm believer that it is also one of the reasons that that record and my career went like I disappeared. Right. Then I watch this documentary about surviving R. Kelly 15 years later. And it breaks my heart to hear these women say, nobody, not a single artist said anything about this. Nobody mm-hmm. stood up for us. I'm like crying, yelling at the TV, like crying so sad. Like I tried, I tried, I tried, you know, but it was like screaming into the void. And so I'm not saying this to be like, I was the first to do that. I don't want any credit for that. I'm saying sometimes, and this circles back to the beginning of our conversation. Sometimes it just takes a minute for people to catch up, especially with crappy things and things that don't feel good and things that aren't fair and injustices. Sometimes it takes a minute for the rest of society as a whole to catch up and go, yeah, this really isn't okay. And so we got to that point where it's not okay that R. Kelly did what he did. It's not okay that Harvey Weinstein did what he did. And back then we knew it wasn't okay. We would say it was not okay, but there was no real action taken. And maybe 15 years from now, people will acknowledge that it's really not okay the way that we have been stealing from our artists and treating them so poorly. And maybe as a collective, people will be ready to actually take this suggestion as a, oh, actually, yeah, that makes sense. But don't expect it to happen anytime soon. That's why I knew that there would be a little bit of like, it would be like a gimmick. It would be seen as a bit gimmicky. But I did it because I honestly just didn't have anything to lose. I believe in it. I believe that I should get paid for what I do. I should be able to make a living. And I don't think I should have to miss out on any revenue. So that's heroic. <laughs> Is it though? <laughs> Did Spotify I, ever respond? No. And it's funny because I have a song called Crash where I say, maybe I wasn't that brave so much as brazen, but it got me through. And I kind of feel that way. Is that, I don't know if, if I'm brave or heroic. If I'm just uh, too dumb to stay down. You know? Like I just, <laughs> I just am who I am. But thank you. If you see it that way, thank you. The hope would be that there would be a, some catalyst for change at some point. I think it's heroic to be earnest and to be honest and to say what's right. So I guess by that level it is. To switch gears just a little bit, and maybe this is connected actually, but you have collaborated with so many hip hop artists over the years, like Black Eyed Peas, Most Def, Kanye West, just to name a few. It seems that you are always brought into projects by really incredible artists and and you always had this dynamic. I'm just wondering specifically in hip hop, like Black Eyed Peas and Most Def and Andre 3000, I feel like the work that you've done with the Black Eyed Peas are always in their best moments. Personally, that's just my opinion. And I would love to know more about your collaboration with them because I always feel like you elevate their work so much when you're a part of it or they're inspired by something about you or what. I would just like to know more about that. Well, thank you. As far as like what inspires them about me, you would have to ask them. I can tell you, like I met Will after my first record came out and I was introduced to him by an A&R at, at Interscope named Ben Gordon, Will really loved the song Country Living. And I got behind the front and I loved it because it reminded me of obviously Farside and Tribe and all that kind of hip hop that I really dug. And Will and I just hit it off as friends. He's very funny, very silly, fun to hang out with. And all of the peas, especially in LA running around back then, going to clubs and watching them dance, watching them break dance was just really something to behold. It was really just fun and going to their studio and Will and I just 
basically always just wanted me to sing everything like country living, sing it like you sang country living, sing it like you sang country living. And I always wrote my own stuff. And so Will was the first time too, where like he would have stuff already written hooks and he'd be like, can you sing this? Can you sing this? And they were all just so fun to be around and work with that. I never had a problem with that. It was just like a really fun, exciting energy. And Kim Hill was in the group at that time too. And I really adored her. And yeah, it was just a really fun time. Then again, we collaborated on the Barack Obama Yes We Can campaign song. And what was that like? So surreal. I mean, like, think about it. Like you're in a room and you're with like John Legend. And I, I mean, I knew John, but still that doesn't take away from his level of talent. But like John Legend and like, oh, Herbie Hancock is here. And it was incredible. And just the energy at the time was just, I think we knew that we were doing, not that it was something important, but it was just, yeah, it was just really exciting, man. That was really exciting. You knew it was like kind of changed the world energy, right? Like, yeah, felt really true and real and important. And everyone there really believed in what was happening. And it was exciting, the idea that this guy could be president. And so exciting. It was so exciting. And I don't know if you, were you guys in LA then? Yeah. I was in New like, York, but yeah. Do you remember being like I lived at Coldwater and Ventura at that time? Uh-huh. And I remember being on my bike and like I think on a Super Tuesday, biking down to like Laurel and Ventura and just seeing like crowds of people with signs and they were playing that song. And it was so exciting. And I'd been in the States at that point for 15 years or something. Like I'd been here for a while and I had never felt the energy around an election like that. It was so positive and happy. And I don't know, it was just, I remember how exciting that was. Yeah. We felt the world was changing and it was for the better. And it's just shocking that it could be flipped <laughs> and then retrogressively as yeah. it has been. Yeah. But to be a part of that, must have been thrilling it was. and to contribute to that. Yeah, that was a really, really fun day. And then again, recently, when they did the most recent record, the piece and Will invited me to come in because you asked what it is about me. And I can tell you that when I went in and I started singing in the booth, he got really excited and got really nostalgic. He's like, I forgot what it felt like to have you in the room. You know, like he was like, I forgot this. And so I know that I bring Will a lot of joy when I sing. That's what I know. But you would have to ask him in particular why that is. So are you guys going to do something again soon or in the future? Do you have any plans? I don't know. I have no idea. No current plans. We had said something then. He asked me if I wanted to maybe do like an EP or something. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I haven't heard. But that's a crazy life he's living. Like, <laughs> there's a nice and responsible for a lot. Like, the thing is with Will, I would have to stay on him. I would have to call him all the time and be like, hey, I'm here. Hey, I'm available. And I don't really do that. <laughs> what is next for you? Well, I'm working on two EPs that I would like to drop simultaneously. And they're almost done. And then I have to figure out how I want to go about releasing them. Because to be honest, I don't really look forward to doing it independently entirely. And when I say independent, I mean like it's just me. There's no management. There's no nothing. It's just me. And it's a lot. And especially when I'm putting so much into it and I really feel like this stuff is beautiful and I'd like for as many people to hear it as possible. So I'm going to shop it around. 
I went through a very prolific phase writing. And so I'm sitting on a ton of stuff. I just need to focus and finish one thing at a time. So (laughs) after you release those, any plans for a new album, a full length album? I love the idea of an album. And I feel like even these two EPs might eventually merge into an album with some extra songs like that could happen too. Because I have enough for an album or two right now. But I feel like I like the idea of the EPs because they tell a story. So it's going to be called Thank You for Being Broken Volume 1, which will be the Half Love EP. And then the Cold Hearted EP is Thank You for Being Broken Volume 2. And they're about two different heartaches at different times. So one is from 2014 and another from 2016. Sort of the stories of those loves gone horribly painfully excruciatingly painfully wrong (laughs) here it is my pain for your pleasure (laughs) on a platter and what about love gone right what about love gone right well that's happening now which is wonderful congratulations Um, thank you so we'll see what kind of songs come out of that I generally write when I'm really sad. So, babe, could you make me miserable for a little bit? And then, (laughs) (laughs) but honestly, like I've experienced enough. I think I've experienced enough pain and heartache for a lifetime to keep writing those from that place. Like I can write those albums, but I don't know. Maybe I should be writing from, uh, maybe I'll manifest some newer stuff, you know, from some better feelings. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting and hopeful. Yeah. Curious. Do you think that there's one soulmate for each person or or many? Oh, wow. That's deep. I think that there's many, but I think that we choose our partners. But like, I say this because my soulmate 100% was my dog, Obo. I know he was my soulmate. Like that was my soulmate. And then I also had a soulmate that was my cat for 19 years. And then I've had like these soul connections with, I have soulmates that are girlfriends of mine. Like I have soulmates that are my soulmates that are not based in romantic love. All of the most deepest connections that I've had, actually, I say this, I think about it now, the deepest kind of soulmatey connections have not been romantic love. They've been deep, like bonds of deep friendship and care or like maternal kind of love. But I know that like, as far as like romantic love soulmate, is there more than one? I don't know. I don't know. You have to ask me closer to the end of my life, I think. Okay. You know, have another conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I know that this man that I'm with now is my partner who I choose, who I absolutely love. And I know that he loves me. Because when I think of soulmate, I guess sometimes I think about this idea of like two souls that are like one soul that was split in half, right? Like that you're exactly alike. And one of the reasons that we work so well and that I love him so much is in all the ways that he's not like me, you know, and all the strengths that he has that I don't and vice versa. So the idea of a soulmate actually of narcissistic, <laughs> this is where my brain is going now. Like, I wish I could think of it. There's this great quote by San Exupery about this love looking out in the same direction, but I have to get it for you. I'll send it to you because okay. I can't think of it. Yeah, because I'm not sure, like, I want to see myself, like, my reflection. Like, I like his. (laughs) (laughs) Just to kind of end on a note, what would you say to your 17-year-old self? I mean, you've been through so much in your career. If you could talk to yourself when you were just starting, what would you tell yourself at that age? Oh, man. I would say, like, put down the bottle, get present, 
get okay with not knowing shit. Like you don't have to know everything all the time. Practice sitting still and being uncomfortable. I think that would be sort of the main thing is like you will have so many gifts if you just like pay attention and breathe, learn how to breathe, (laughs) (laughs) learn how to just breathe, like take a breath. Yeah. I wish I could go back and just tell myself to really enjoy it, but it's like that classic thing, like youth is wasted on the young, right? You know, all those experiences, I have so many memories and so many bittersweet memories and so many things I wish I could do over just because I deserve those experiences now because I would honor a lot of those experiences so much better and be so much more present for them. But I guess circling back, if I hadn't, like everything I did and all the choices I made led me to where I am now. So no regrets, right? Like right right on. Without Jenny B, there's no Astero. <laughs> so God bless her. <laughs> so at the end of this, we do this thing called the quick draw. Six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. All right, Alex. Okay, first question. Biggest hero. Maya Angelou. Who are you listening to right now? My heart. Most underrated artist. Spooky Rubin. Greatest song ever written. If it's magic, Stevie Wonder. Best advice you ever got. Best advice I ever got. Best advice I ever got. Hold on. Best advice I ever got. Best advice I ever got. Dave Pensato said to me, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. You can trust yourself. That sounds so cookie cutter. Guilty pleasure. I don't feel guilty about pleasure. I think that's your soundbite right there, okay? I think we got it. Thanks for listening to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at ArtLawsPod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Bye.